My name's Moore, Michael Moore. We know that, fathead. Now, Peter, thanks a lot for coming up and saying... I have a poem, Mr. McPherson. Will you keep quiet? We've heard your poem. Mr. McPherson, I haven't said a word. And I should think that one Michael Moore on the program was enough. You can say that again. I should think that one Michael Moore on the program was enough. Blimey, it's an echo. Try it again, Mr. Moore. <laughs> Certainly. Hello. 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 Who's the lady friend? Who's the little Look, all, lady All right, all right. One of those, Mr. Moore's, was Peter Sellers. And I'll leave you to work out which one it was. <laughs> Goompod. My name is Tyler Adams. Uh, I'm joined again today by uh, Peter Sellers authority, Mark Cousins. Um, Mark's returned to uh, talk specifically about um, Sellers on the wireless um, before the Goon Show. So this is Sellers' uh, post-war burgeoning career as an entertainer, focusing on his radio work leading up to the birth of the Goons and uh, crazy people in 1951. So you join the chat as I uh, mentioned to Mark about an odd incident that had occurred to me recently. Oh, was it, what was it? Maybe about a month ago, Mark, I was, I had an issue with, um, well, I needed a, I had a technical question and I posted on the uh, Apple support community because it was to do with the podcast. Okay. It was just a technical, right. little technical thing. Nothing, nothing about the content, just about the way that it's um, shown on iTunes. Right. So, so I posted this technical question, and I, I didn't specify the podcast. It was under my own name, all right? Yes, yeah. Um, and I received one reply, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was from someone called Roger Wilmot. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Who answered the question I had adequately, all right? And I, I thanked him, and I said, are you that Roger Wilmot. <laughs> yes. And there was a reply, I'm afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just I just asked, you know, I, I explained who I was and what I did. Yeah. And it was a complete coincidence. You That's know? amazing. Is, isn't yeah. it? Um, so the funny thing about Roger, <laughs> um, I looked and he does have, because I'm always on Twitter. And and I get and a yes. lot of a lot of this show's success has been via Twitter, believe it or not, because of um, it. Just you know, it's for promotional purposes. Yes, um, yes. And I looked to see, and yet Roger Wilmot does have a Twitter account. Okay, but I looked, and I think it set it up in two thousand and nine, maybe when Twitter began, maybe, and hasn't posted for like twelve years or something. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I looked, and he had three followers. Okay. <laughs> People, three, yeah. three, three people who followed his account. Okay, um, yeah. uh, two, two of them I'd never heard of. One of them was Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's a great story in its in its own right. You should definitely put that in one of your podcasts. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> oh, it's going in this one. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing is, like you said, his book is the Bible as far as the Goon Show is concerned. 
and yes, you know, there have been found errors with it and things missing and all that. It's obviously never going to get updated. Um, and, you know, Goon fans love it. That's right. Um, and speaking of books, how's yours going? <laughs> if, I, if I was, I'd love to be able to say to you, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be hard at work on my book. Yeah. Um, but I just, I don't know, I just am finding it very difficult to sort of knuckle down to it because as I think I might have said to you before, I've got, I've now got scripts for the Fred shows oh. and I need to document them. Um, and it is a very laborious process. And I, the trouble is I want to document them fully, but I know that if I do that, I'm just making my, my book even bigger and it's already too big. So it's a very difficult thing to do because what I actually want to do, what I have done with other shows is gone through scripts or recordings and documented every sketch, um, which is why the book is so big. Um, mm, when the Fred yeah. shows, um, up until now, I only had a couple of actual recordings, but now I've got a lot of them on in script form, um, not all of them. You know, that creates a huge problem. I'm hoping maybe later this year, I'm hoping to get access, if I can, to Spike's own copies so that I'll have a complete set then. Because Ooh, the thing right. is, you see, one of the reasons I want to do this is because nobody is going to get to see this stuff. Most of the recordings don't exist anymore. The scripts are buried away in archives. But people want to know what was it like? What, what happened? You know, who did what? Who played what? Who wrote the sketches? All that stuff. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. But just in case people haven't heard, because because um, uh, Mark appeared on the show previously and, and was talking about this mammoth, all encompassing Peter Sellers chronology, which is which is going to be a sprawling examination of his careers, mainly his career rather than his life, isn't it, Mark? Yes, it certainly is. Yeah, it's a it's a real day by day look at the work he was doing in every medium, basically. So, Mark, when you were here, as I say previously, among other topics, you you, you did talk a little bit about uh, Peter on the wireless, um, and specifically, there was a, there was a couple of shows we touched upon: um, Raise a Laugh and Paradise Street. But this time, you've, you've come along, and you're going to focus, as I said, on on his his radio work. But it's it's the early sort of pre goons radio work that you're going to focus on predominantly. Is that yes. right? Yes, yes, because I thought it's a subject that most people, you know, if they know anything about Sellers, don't don't really know much about what he did before the Goon Show, um, and so I thought it was an interesting uh, subject to explore because, well, the story really starts in 1948 because Sellers had been demobbed from the RAF the previous year and he was still only 22. And of course, as many people know, he'd started in the gang show and he sort of honed his skills as a drummer uh, and a ukulele player. And he'd done a bit of comedy acting in, in the in the gang show. Um, but after the um, demob, he was really out of work. And but he, he got a couple of jobs early on through family friends as in a holiday camp and a fairground and one thing and another. But he was still looking for work as a drummer. He thought of himself as a drummer and then a comedian. So he started like that and then he wasn't getting on very well. And then he sort of dropped, eventually dropped the drumming um, in favour of just doing impressions and playing his ukulele. So by early 1948, um, he was sort of doing the round, going for auditions. He, he had a, 
in, interestingly, most people don't realise his first audition really was for TV. Uh, he did two TV auditions because you had to in those days, one just to see if you were going to be acceptable for television and then to do a proper camera audition. And then he did a windmill audition, which he was successful with. And most people realise or know that he then started doing six shows a day, six days a week um, at the windmill. Uh, and it was in, at that time, while he was at the windmill, that he got his radio audition. So that was that was in April 48. And by sort of May and June, he still hadn't heard anything. Um, I was getting more and more frustrated. But... Um, he did his first TV appearance and perhaps you might be interested actually later I can you know make on a different podcast perhaps talk about his early TV career because yeah. that's fascinating too well um, yeah I mean absolutely but just just what was that first TV appearance he did uh, something called new to you which was a sort of talent show um, that was done live from Alexander Palace and hosted by uh, then popular comedian Dick Bentley, later of Take It From Here fame. You know, that that was sort of deemed to be quite successful, but it didn't really go very far very quickly. I believe you've been at the, the windmill. The yes. windmill theatre, that's right. I've been there for the last six weeks. Is that right, that the men can uh, read their programmes by the gleam in their eye there? <laughs> well, I should think so, Dick, yes. definitely. How do you find six shows a day, Peter? Well, quite tiring, you know, but they're a very, very nice crowd and it makes it a lot easier for you. All right, Peter, well, the camera is all yours. But as Thank most people ready. know, fa famously um, fed up with waiting for results of his radio audition, he'd, he'd, been, he'd been told that he'd passed his radio audition, but nothing happened. And he got so frustrated with it. That's when he um, mm. did the famous uh, impressions of um, Kenneth Horne and Richard Murdoch and blagged his way into appearing for the first time on the radio, which took place on the 1st of July, 1948, uh, on a programme called Showtime, which, again, was coincidentally hosted by Dick Bentley. Um, and lots of other people appeared on it. It didn't run for very long. Uh, Bob Monkhouse appeared on it at one time, Dick Emery, Reg Dixon, and loads of other forgotten names. Uh, and interestingly, he obviously did pretty well because he got invited to, to appear for a second time. Um, I don't know if that was unusual or not, but he, as I say, his first appearance was in July. And then in August, he appeared again, interestingly, on a programme that also featured young up-and-coming double act, Morecambe and Wise. Oh, um, Okay. Um, there is a recording of that appearance, um, and it was in Seller's own collection. Um, nobody at the time thought anything of recording the, this stuff, even if they had the equipment to do it, which most people didn't. But Sellers obviously got his mum to, um, to sit there with his disc cutter, which he bought from Bob Monkhouse, um, to, uh, to sit there and record it. And thankfully, some of this stuff still exists, and so you can listen to it. Good evening, and welcome to Any Questions. Well, we're all set to go, and here is a voice with the first object. Listen. Thought it was there for a minute. Miserable old hay bag. And the first object is a tin of snook. A tin of snook. Uh, Mr. McPherson, can you eat it? Yes, what's on this card is eaten. Uh, do you mean you can eat the card or what's on it? No, Mr. Moore, you eat what's on the card. Oh, I bet I don't. Show me what it is and I'll tell you. Mr. Moore, shut up! Well, here we are with the next object and here is the voice to tell you what it is. And the next object is a carrot. A carrot. This one is vegetable. I know, Mr. McPherson, I know. It's a carrot. 
Correct first time, Mr. Moore. How did you get it so quick? Oh, perfectly simple. I just heard the voice tell me what it was. Oh, my, you magnificent eavesdropper, you. Didn't he junk a lot of his old recordings in a, um, sort of, towards the end of his life? He certainly junked a lot of stuff, and that's what we're led to believe. The trouble is, knowing what isn't there... <laughs> Is is quite difficult. Um, yeah, uh, I believe he kept a lot of stuff, despite having thrown a lot of stuff away. I believe he kept quite a, all sorts of things um, that he kept, and a lot of his personal possessions, although there aren't many, um, are held by the BFI. So they've got his original ukulele. Um, they've got his um, last goon show of all gold disc. They've got some of his glasses and driving license and other bits and bobs. Um, uh, and an early, uh, they've got an early poster and some other things. So mm-hmm. not lots. Um, mm. And and one or two things from when he was a child. I think a, a, a birthday invitation from, from the, I don't know, his third or fourth birthday and things like that. So okay. they have that stuff. Mm-hmm. So at least it's being preserved somewhere. But yeah. anyway, so so Showtime took place um, at the People's Palace, Mile End Road. Um, so he, he did five minutes. Now, who... Who wrote the script? I mean, this is a, a big question for anything like this, because in those days, um, you know, on, on ra- any radio broadcast, you, you could never find out who wrote the scripts without actually looking at the scripts themselves, because they never print it in the Radio Times or, or tell you on the air who wrote the scripts. And I think a lot of the time, um, not just in, on radio, but also on stage, the general public didn't know about scriptwriters or or have any need hmm. to know about scriptwriters. So if you ask them, they just assume that the person was making it up as they went along. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that was a genuine, you know, it was a genuine failing, but nobody corrected it and nobody thought anything about scriptwriters. I mean, it was only the likes of, well, particularly Frank Muir and Dennis Norton, when they came along a lot later, um, that people started to say, oh, right, you know, they, they almost became celebrities in their own right, as did later on Galton and Simpson and people like that in their later careers, that people actually started realising that, no, there are actual professional writers and they're doing a good job at this, you know. <laughs> I'm pretty convinced that um, Sellers' early appearances, like the one on Showtime, would have probably been um, put together by his father, and his father would have had input because, you know, he had experience um, at a lot of this stuff. So I think it was probably assembled. I mean, one of the things that you know he was criticised for in his audition was poor material yeah. um, um, for that sort of reason. You know, he, and I think that was probably also the, the source of uh, some of his early failures on stage. He, he was obviously a young man, an up and coming uh, star in the making. But if you haven't got good material, you know, nobody cares because they're, they're listening to what you've got to say. And if they don't find it funny, they'll certainly tell you, you know, you know, a bit later on. He knew Muir and Norton because um, they were quite often at a place called Daddy Allen's, which was uh, a sort of cafe bar at the back of the windmill where a lot of these sort of people would hang out together. Ex-servicemen and Muir and Norton were both ex-servicemen. Um, clearly, later on, Jimmy Grafton and Larry Stevens and, and and Bob Monkhouse was in the RAF as well. So they, although they didn't know each other when they were serving, they they had some kind of affinity and bond. So I just think he he sort of took material from wherever he could get it at the time. Um, once he got into radio, very quickly, 
um, he was getting put into all sorts of shows. And I think you sort of have to understand the the workings of radio in those days. I mean, for, for a start, he, he was obviously appeared suddenly out of nowhere in, in Showtime, uh, as I'd mentioned. So that wasn't billed. And a lot of his earlier appearances were not billed in the Radio Times because he was just kind of crowbarred in to, to all sorts of things. Um, and he didn't always list who all the cast were anyway. Mm. So um, what we have to remember is also that most of the shows follow the same sort of, the variety shows follow the same format as variety shows on stage, because everyone was familiar with that. And they, they might be a kind of personality um, at the centre of it, but they were largely variety shows, you know, odd sketches and other bits and pieces that would work on the radio. And so the next thing he did was Henry Hall's Guest Night. Henry Hall was um, a musical director um, with his own orchestra and what mm-hmm. have you. And um, oh, he'd been doing this Henry Hall's Guest Night, I think, since about 1934. So, <laughs> so it'd been going for a long time. And But again, they would never put in there who in the Radio Times who the guests were because they wanted people to listen to the programme just in case their their favourite star might be on next and you'd never quite know who it was going to be. So it's actually quite difficult um, to work out the shows that Sellers was in. But I know that he was in at least half a dozen between um, 1948 and 1956. So he was still popping up doing his... And some of the regulars that were in that show, certainly in the early days, were Benny Hill and and Alfred Marks. And Sellers was in one of those programmes with those two. Um, and he obviously he knew Alfred Marx as well. Again, Alfred Marx had been in the RAF and they'd appeared. He was also in the show at the windmill when Sellers was there. So they worked together. And obviously later on, they were, were on film together in Penny Points to Paradise. Mm-hmm. So they they really you know knew each other pretty well. Another interesting show um, was something called It's Fine to Be Young. It only ran for, I think, one series. Uh, I think it was uh, 12 episodes and Sellers was certainly in the first, well, he was certainly in four of them anyway, from August 48. And they were hosted by Ralph Reader of gang show fame. So of course he knew Sellers and various other performers. And again, another regular in that series was Bob Monkhouse. But Bob Monkhouse really had a, to certainly to start with, had a parallel career with Sellers. Um, How close were they in the, in the, at this time? Monkhouse and Sellers, because um, I've never really picked up on the Sellers-Monkhouse friendship. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have been able to interview Bob Monkhouse, because I think he could have told us an awful lot, um, particularly about these early days, because they didn't, I don't I don't think they hung out together, um, but they certainly knew each other, and as I say, on a few occasions, they worked together. And The, the weird thing is, though, because you've got Sellers there who's, who's getting his mum to record as much as possible, and obviously Monkhouse was famous for recording well everything (laughs) exactly the the, the story is that um sellers uh found out that monkhouse had this disc recorder and he desperately wanted to buy it from monkhouse and monkhouse didn't want to sell it and i think he ended up i can't remember he he ended up offering about a fiver more than he paid for it and monkhouse thought well this is this is a good deal i can go out and buy another one and i've made some money as well so then (laughs) So Sellers bought this thing and took it home. And I don't know what happened, but clearly he couldn't figure out how to use it properly. So his mum went round to um, Monkhouse's house and complained that it was broken and he wanted his money back. 
<laughs> she wasn't going to leave until she got the money back. Anyway, he clearly kept the disc cutter. Well, I don't know how that was all resolved, but he kept it all and, and recorded quite a lot on it over the years on these little little discs. So, And that's the source of these radio programmes. So obviously Monk House was more into recording for its own sake, if you like, than Sellers was. Mm. Sellers used to use it, um, A, to record his his own appearances, but also for rehearsal purposes. So he would use he would use it to, you know, read dialogue and hear it back and stuff like that in the way that you might later on use a domestic tape recorder to do the same thing. Yeah, it's funny how Monkhouse was such a pioneer in terms of the sort of archiving of yeah, yes. television and radio during a period when it was just seen as totally disposable. Yeah, and thank goodness he was, because, I mean, there's all, all sorts of things that had survived, not just to do with himself and Peter Sellers, but lots and lots of other things that yeah. by rights would have been, well, ha- had disappeared from archives many years earlier. Mm, mm. And so he appeared in that in uh, It's Fine to Be Young uh, at least four times, taking us through into September, um, by which time he got himself into one of the biggest variety shows on the radio at that time, Variety Bandbox. Mm. And that that was a big deal. Um, there were um, notably people like um, Frankie Howard at one stage fronting it as the kind of regular comedian, which they would do. They'd have a regular comedian and then they have guests and, and all sorts of things and singers. And it was a typical variety show. Most of these things um, for convenience, I suppose, came from variety theatres um, all over, mostly London, because it was convenient to do that. But Sellers appeared in it about 15 times um, between 48 and 51. And so popular was it, for, um, as far as his appearances were concerned, they, they, they set up a sort of series within a series, um, which was written as a, a sort of a spot written by um, Jimmy Grafton, I think it was, called Blessham Hall, in which... Sellers and Miriam Carlin played a whole variety of characters um, and uh, it ran for, I think it ran every other week uh, for six or seven editions, something like that. Uh, But it's interesting because he he played, Sellers played all sorts of characters that he created called Major Maneuver and Giuseppe Cipollata, who was a head waiter, who actually appears in Penny Points to Paradise in 51. So he's the waiter that had appeared right. in Variety right. Bandbox. And oh, sophisticated stuff, the character names. Oh yeah, I know, I know. And and um Miriam Carlin and Sellers were starting to be seen as a bit of a double act, mm. which I think neither of them liked. But Miriam Carlin could hold her own doing funny character voices because she was an actress. Um and so Sellers played a character, Herbert Perks, who was a night porter, and Mrs. Snifflepuffle. <laughs> right. And Mrs. Bucket. I mean, there was, a, there was a whole gallery of these, but it really, you know, despite the, the, the humorous sounding name, um, Jimmy Grafton wrote it under a pseudonym, Jimmy Douglas, which he often used. Um, yeah. and, and I think he'd uh, used that sometimes for uh, when he wrote for Derek Roy, but it wasn't very successful. They even tried to bring in another person they brought jimmy hanley in who was pretty famous in those days yeah but it wasn't much of an improvement and they cancelled it but sellers still 
continue to appear occasionally, as I said, right the way through to 51. But uh, here we have one of the really up-and-coming personalities that the past Eurosource broadcasting has produced. With his amusing comedy impressions, I'm always very glad to reintroduce the rising star of Razor Laugh and Petticoat Lane and so forth, Peter Sellers. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Peter Sellers taking you over to Theatreland to hear some excerpts from the new pantomime, Cellarinda, with an all-star radio cast. The show is introduced by radio's ray of sunshine, Ted Ray. Hello, boys and girls. Prepare yourselves for chestnuts, corn and chaff. Let's raise the curtain and raise a laugh. It's interesting, there's this, uh, I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's worth taking a look at Miriam Carlin's um, autobiography that she wrote, because she talks a little bit about this, um, and not particularly in glowing terms, but it's an interesting read anyway. Okay. So anyway, so he was also, by then he got involved in something called Tempo for Today, which again was really, I mean, this is from November to December 48. So that was sort of seeing him through to the end of the year. So you get the impression that he's starting to appear over and over again in loads of different uh, different programmes. And in fact, um, there is a memo somewhere in the BBC um, to, to, to many of the producers saying, look, can we just stop having this guy in every programme? <laughs> you know, can Christ. we do this with reference to each other? Because he was appearing all over the place. He was clearly very popular and very amenable to doing all this. So he'd gone from, just in just in less than a year, he'd gone from being a sort of nobody, having been um, demobbed from the, the RAF and struggling to find anything to do. Suddenly he's on the radio and he's all over it. I mean, he really was all over it like a rash. And so so, so I guess, I'm, I'm guessing his, his material must have sharply improved then from showtime to the end of 48 for him to keep getting so much work. I think so. And I suspect that in some cases, because obviously these were, you know, fairly prestigious shows, um, that whoever was writing generally for the show, if Sellers didn't have good enough material, they might either polish it up or might write something for him. You know, so they weren't going to, there was no way the programme was going to be a failure thanks to Sellers' terrible material, whatever right. happened. Yeah. So, and yes, I'm sure it was improving. And I, I suspect around this time that... Um, people like Larry Stevens were helping him. I mean, we'll never really know, mm. um, but I can perceive he'd probably get more help a bit later on from Larry Stevens and, and Spike Milligan. But Spike was so wrapped up later on in the Goon show that I don't think he had the bandwidth to do it. I mean, he, he could fit, he could, you know, struggle to write the Goon show, let alone having more to write. So, yes. And also I wouldn't be at all surprised that if later on, um, he got material from Michael Benteen. I mean, we know that Michael Benteen wrote one or two sketches for him later because uh, they didn't meet till 49. Um, but I'm sure he did because, uh, you know, he, he wrote, Benteen wrote material for Harry Seacombe as well. And, and um, I'm sure, you know, if you're used to comedy and you're used to writing comedy, then you can either recycle and reshape some old material or come up with something that's amusing. Um, and particularly, you know, comedy is a young man's game. And, you know, they were all kind of raring to go in those days, I think. And, uh, and I think that helped. Um, and then before the year was out, he was in, I guess it was a similar show in a way to Henry Hall's Guest Night, um, Starlight Hour. 
This one was fronted by Geraldo and his concert orchestra, um, who again were kind of, you know, very well known, highly thought of. Um, and he was providing sort of comic turns in that, notably um, Sellers Market. Um, now, Sellers Market was his weekly stint, which was um, which was really, you know, a, a kind of it was almost like he was a sort of a barrow boy and he was he was there sort of, you know, getting people to roll up and buy stuff and, and that kind of thing. That was the idea. And then he that was used as a vehicle then to come out with loads of different impressions of all sorts of people um, and to show off his skills. Now, that, that was all written by Muir and Norton. I've seen the scripts for most of those and it was very well done. It was well put together and Sellers was extremely good in it. I mean, I, I've just, I made a note just to give you an idea um, in that one program. He was, he was in, um, he was in it about 11 times. And in that time he did the following characters. He was Colonel Chinstrap from Itmar. He did Frisbee Dyke also from Itmar played by Derek Guyler. Um, he did the whole cast of Dick Barton. Um, special agent yeah. Claude Dampier, yeah. Kenneth Horn, Claude Hulbert. He did uh, John Pertwee's Postman from Merry Go Round, and uh, he played Sam Costa, Jimmy Jewell, Dick Bentley, Sid Field, Rob Wilton, Tommy Hanley, Bill Kerr, George Formby, <laughs> Peter Laurie, Ralph, Ralph Reader, um, Robertson Hare. Oh, loads. I mean, Morris Denham. Jimmy Edwards, Ted Ray, Gilbert Harding, and some other comedians that are completely forgotten today, Reg Dixon. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And then he would, they quite often use, within this, they'd use um, a particular popular show of the day as a kind of anchor then to, Im to them impersonate the entire cast, which is what he did like with Itmar and Much Binding in the Marsh. Yeah. On one occasion, he actually swapped characters between shows. So he put one set of characters from one famous show into another and then did the show. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. So you could see by that time, he was really at the top of his game. And, uh, and it all happened very, very quickly. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Now, this week, we have a special line for registered customers. It's a new type of soap, Stinko. Now, Stinko doesn't lather, foam, bubble, or cleanse, but it is company in the bath. <laughs> You'll take it, sir? <laughs> good, good. I'll get my man to wrap it up for you. Uh, Costa! Good evening, sir. Was there something? Yes, um, just wrap this bar up for the gentleman, will you? Well, here's a fine thing. I want to get off early, and I'll work me head to the bone for you. It's the same old story. Give him an inch, and he'll take an aspirin tablet. <laughs> it's downright mellifluous. Uh, uh, do, we, do we know, that, so around this time that he's doing, like you say, Tempo for Today, Starlight Hour... Yeah. Um, do we know? Are there any sort of prototype voices? I don't mean impressions, but you know, comedy voices that we would come to know. Was he? Did he, like? I'm thinking, for example, yes. you mentioned the Barrow Boy. Was that was that an early sort of William Mate Cobblers or? or, or well, we yeah. Know? I mean, that's exactly what was happening. He was because in one or two programs, not so much in these series. I mean, I'm just there were other programs he was in around this time, but it was usually just a kind of one-off appearance or something like that. Um, but yes, I mean, he did. In one or two shows, he did just that. He'd do sort of character comedy. He was mostly doing impressions, but he would do some character comedy. But that really that that really started to happen a bit later. Um, but it, it you know, in earnest, um, as you as you'll see when we come to Raise a Laugh, because you know, he he created characters for that, or characters were created for him, and he breathed mm. life into those characters. Um 
And um, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But he, he, you know, later on, he created these things. He did things like a character called Eustace, uh, later, later to be called Soppy. And he oh. goes, shout out, Soppy. Yeah. You know, and he, he was called Eustace. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, you may have seen, other people may have seen, um, Sellers had a kind of um, a, 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 a photo card that he'd hand out to people, like a lot of the stars of the day did. And Sellers' picture has his face, and it's surrounded by cartoons of many of these early characters, um, like Eustace. And he had another one called Hortense, who would be saying, ah, there you are, dear boy. And this Giuseppe that I mentioned before, who's um, uh -huh. who was a waiter, and he would sort of say, what do you want? Supposing we got it, you know, um, <laughs> and, and Crystal Jollybottom, and a character called Sidney, which he... Um, used later, much later, in win-a-lot dog food adverts on TV, oh, yeah, um, okay. which was my, my man Sidney and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. So the, the voices were around, but it was sort of early days. And, of course, at the same time, he was trying to get his stage career off the ground. But, frankly, his radio career was doing much better than his stage career. Um, he was just a, appearing in odd one-off mostly charity shows actually on a, on a Sunday or something like that because as you can see from what I've said his days were quite busy recording or in, in, in other cases going out live on the radio constantly so there almost wasn't enough time for for stage work but he was doing some but it was one of those things where actually once his once his um, radio career got off the ground it helped his stage career. It wasn't the other way around. It was it was the radio career first, then the stage career. Yeah. Um, and he he got his sort of first weeks, um, proper first week booking in February 1949. I mean, he'd had he'd had a few others to be honest, but they were really in the days when he was doing drumming, and it was a real disaster. And then, of course, he'd be sent all over the country, like uh, like all these performers were. Um, although he'd often be home on a Sunday. So he, on, that's why Sundays were important um, because that was the only day that he had to, to actually record anything or do any radio work if he was being sent around the country. Sure, yep. So it was a pretty hectic, chaotic life, I think, and in and out of um, digs all over the place. Uh, I, I, guess, I guess if he's so ubiquitous on the radio, he's clearly making a, quite a bit of money. I think so. I think, you know, he was probably doing okay. I mean, he was still living at home. Yeah. Um, and a lot of his early work, so a lot of his early stage work was around London. And and also later on, when he was had more radio commitments, it became almost Im imperative that his um, stage work was around London so he could dash back to the BBC. Right. Obviously, as we know, he, he would buy all the latest gadgets, cars, clothes, whatnot. And I just wondered whether that passion for spending and for buying and for acquiring, he had that in the, in the late 40s. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, because it wasn't so much for spending and acquiring. It was more to do with gadgets. I mean, he just loved, you know, and that's why he liked, you know, a car was another gadget in a way, you know, so yeah. he liked cameras and recording equipment and, and, uh, and all that sort of stuff and always had to try to make sure he had the best and, you know, who could blame him? So, yes, I think... I think he had quite nice clothes too, you know, so he always liked to do that. I don't think he spent his money on anything else, to be honest. And mm. if he was living at home, he was probably rent free. Yeah. Um, so, um, and his mum was probably only too pleased to be able to keep control of him 
um, at home. Um, and it was only later on that he actually moved out. Yeah. So, you know, he was, he was if you can imagine, he was travelling all over the country, um, coming home on Sundays. He probably had to go back somewhere else on Monday to be in another theatre, uh, ready for another band call on a Monday morning, probably, or Monday lunchtime, um, and probably doing two performances a day. And then on the Sunday, off again, back to the BBC, back home and recording some more stuff and then do all the same again on a, on the Monday. Now, that wasn't the case in 1948, which is what we were talking about, but it certainly was later on. Yeah. And I think it became quite difficult for him later on um, because of Razor Laugh and later on The Goon Show, which he, at some stage he was re- recording together, you know, at the same time, practically. Which is why when you look at his, as I say, his live performing career, he was appearing at places like the Chiswick Empire and Finsbury Park Empire and Shepherd's Bush and Croydon and Golders Green and not travelling around the country so much because it just wasn't possible. But 1948, I mean, that wasn't the end of it because 19, recorded at the end of 1948 was the legendary Third Division, some vulgar fractions, mm. which was a landmark um, for sellers um, in many respects, because the six-part series was again written by Muir and Norden and has become known to many as the source of Ballam Gateway to the South and the Common Entrance sketch, Yep, both of which incidentally come from the same show. And it was a groundbreaking programme because, you know, it was, this was on the third programme, um, later Radio 3, um, there was no audience but the other, the key thing for Sellers actually wasn't so much what happened on the radio; it was the fact that he met Michael Benteen and Harry Seacombe, mm. and they already knew each other from the windmill. So this was the sort of first coming together and the first time they really performed together. And and of course Pat Dixon. Yes, and that was another key. That was another key thing. You know, they don't. They don't. I don't know who got Sellers into the program, but by this time, you know, Muir and Norden were pretty well known, and 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 it wouldn't surprise me whether they got sellers in. Um, but he was all over the BBC, like I said before. So you couldn't really miss this guy called Sellers. And if you're putting a comedy show together, then you want somebody like him who's fairly flexible and adaptable. And the show also had Benny Hill in it, who was, again, a rising star around the same sort of time, although I think he was slightly further ahead. Um, some of the names, you know, forgotten now, like Benny Lee, who was a singer, and the actor... Robert Beatty, who seems to be turning up with uh, alarming regularity on Talking Pictures TV these days. There was also <laughs> there was also a guy called Bruce, Bruce Belfridge in it, who not only was an actor um, and BBC newsreader, but he was a, a Liberal Party politician as well. <laughs> so <laughs> what he's doing in a programme like this, I have no idea. Um, but it, it's an interesting sidebar because Bruce um, Belfridge um, in 1940... Um, was the guy that was reading the news when the BBC was hit by a German bomb. Um, oh, right. So, so anyway, so that rounded off. That was all being that was all recorded at the end of '48 for broadcast in January and February '49. Uh, um, so, it's, uh, someone, someone else that was in that show was Carol Carr. That's right. Yes, she was. Yes, and later to be, appear in Down Among the Zedmen. Yeah, and also she was in that uh, the, the Goons did a panto. I can't think what it was now. Yeah. I should have checked. She would have met Sellers and, and Seeker Benteen, obviously, through Third Division, I'm, I'm guessing. Yes, I, I think so. And, and, and the interesting thing is that, you know, she was a singer, 
But mm. she appeared in lots of sketches. She wasn't just the singer, like, as I say, in the variety shows. This wasn't a variety show. This was definitely a sketch show. Yeah. Um, there, there would be each program had like a big sketch at the end of it, um, which tended to involve most of the cast. And that's what Ballam Gateway to the South was originally. So it was like the last I think I think I'm right in saying it was the last sketch in that second program. And I think the whole cast was in it. Um, right. Whereas Sellers, you know, we, we, we famously know that he played all the parts on the record, but he certainly didn't uh, in that sketch or any of the others, for that matter, um, in the original recordings. So it was very much an ensemble piece. You've obviously seen the, the ballad sketch in the script for Third Division. So how much updating or tweaking or revising was there? Um, it was a long time ago when I saw it, but it, from memory, it was just some weaker passages were edited out mm. um mm-hmm. uh, it was it was largely as it appears most of it is there um i'm just trying to remember i've got a feeling uh, certainly the script for it was published in a book of frank muir's and dennis norden's sketches which uh, is worth trying to track down it's an, an interesting book because it's as i say it's from all sorts of things not just this and I got a feeling that the original script is in there. Right. But I, I, may, I may stand corrected, but it's it, certainly the, a version of the script is in there. And it's an interesting book for anybody that, that likes that sort of thing. It's worth, worth trying to find it. Long out of print, I suspect. I think it came out in the 70s or 80s. And it, but it was published in hardback and paperback. So you probably wouldn't have too much trouble tracking it down on eBay or somewhere. Mm-hmm. But an interesting one. So, so that really takes sellers from 48 into into 49 um and it's just you know his rise was phenomenal just in in one short year or less than a year because he really only got started in july here we are in 1949 and he's got his first um radio series although he's not the, the star in it he is in every edition bar one actually um but he's definitely in it and it's his first real real taste of an ensemble group of people, you know, appearing in every show and, and well-written too. Uh, and it, it would be fascinating to hear recordings of him with Seacombe. And ben yeah. Oh yes. Yes, definitely. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the, um, the next series he appeared in, um, he appeared in 27 editions. That's all I've been able to trace 27 editions of workers playtime. Oh Yes. Um, the famous workers' playtime, which uh, ran between, well, he he appeared between 1949 and 1956, which is really, 56 was an important year um, in Seller's career, insofar as he'd done The Lady Killers, um, he'd done Radio to Death, uh, he'd done more stage work than he really wanted to, and so he bailed out of a lot of things in 56, in favour of focusing on getting really getting stuck into films. Yeah. And it took a while, but that was why he did that. So, yes, of course, he appeared on the radio again. Yes, of course, he appeared on stage again, but it wasn't the same. He really toned it right down. But in, in um, 1949, he was very pleased, I'm sure, to get in um, to work as Playtime because it was a, a hugely popular show. And for those who don't know, it was basically the idea, again, another variety show, but this time um, from staff canteens of factories and other places all over the country. And um, 
I should imagine it probably wasn't that difficult to organise as far as the BBC were concerned, because most of these huge factories, they'd, they'd have staff canteens, they'd have a stage where they have performers anyway, you know, like local local people doing stuff. Yeah. So setting up setting up a broadcast from one of these places was probably relatively simple. And um, if you cast your mind back, you might remember Sellers talking about um, appearing on um, Workers' Playtime when he did the famous Parkinson interview. Yes. I think there was a certain amount of fondness of appearing on things like this. I mean, yes, they, by today's standard, they'd be seen as pretty cheesy and a bit naff. But in their day, they were hugely popular. And as I say, the series ran for years and years. And just to give you an idea of, uh, of some of the places he appeared, um, Coltolds in Braintree in Essex, Yardley and Co. in Stratford, Huntley and Palmer's Biscuits right. <laughs> in Reading, <laughs> Smith's Clocks, EMI, um, Underwood's Business Machines, Southern United Telephone Cables in Dagenham, um, Will Cigarettes Factory in Bristol, um, all sorts of loads and loads of places. The the problem was that those, those names think, are so evocative, aren't they? Of us, of, I know. Of, of that yes, period. it's a whole it's a whole period. The the sort of early to mid fifties. It, it really is. Yeah. But quite often they wouldn't necessarily announce, particularly in the in the forties uh, and early fifties, they wouldn't necessarily announce where these shows were coming from, and that was a sort of hangover, I think, from the war years where they didn't necessarily want to inform um, the enemy um, where they could perhaps drop a nice bomb somewhere mm. where these factories actually were. So it wasn't just this program, but there were lots of programs where they never actually told you where they were coming from. And it just got, I think it was one of those things that just got carried over and it was only a lot later that they took the clamps off of this um, there was no, there were in peacetime, there was no reason whatsoever, apart from saving space in the Radio Times, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Would it have been seen as as, adver- as giving advertising to the companies in question, perhaps? Um, possibly, but they did mention it. I mean, they mentioned it on the air as far as I, I know. All right. Okay. So I think that was okay. The interesting thing is if you, if you go back to that Parkinson interview, he talks about... Um, playing at the um, canteen of the Spirella Corset Factory, but I haven't found any evidence of him actually playing there. That doesn't mean he didn't, um, but it, it's, uh, it doesn't seem to be in the archives. So. Right. Oh, he, excuse me, but I would like a present for my wife. I want a nice, pretty card. Oh, yes, a cord, sir. Orchestral, pajama, or sash? No, strangling. The trouble with her is that she can't take a choke. The other thing was the BBC, you know, liked these live venues and, and appearing there, but it wasn't always convenient. So they actually set up their own Golden Slipper Club, which was meant to be a nightclub, but actually it wasn't. It wasn't a real nightclub anyway. Um, they, as I say, they did a lot of sort of live outside broadcasts from various West End venues and things like that. Um, but the 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 upside of creating your own is, of course, you've got much more control over it. And so this there was a series called the Golden Slipper Club, which ran apparently for years, and then it stopped, and then it started up again. It was it was running, and it was um, uh, it was hosted by Harold Berens, who was a popular comedian of the day. Um, and Sellers, I think, was quite friendly with him because he actually appears. I can't remember which one, but he appears in one of the Panther films too. Um, 
I've got a funny feeling it might be the trail of the Pink Panther. In other words, edited out of one of the earlier films. Yeah. Um, and then and then he appeared, you know, now into sort of um, uh, it's the spring of 49 and he gets his first appearance in a programme called Music Hall. And I think you can probably guess exactly what that was like. I mean, these <laughs> programmes, you know, from a distance, viewed from a distance, they're just, it's almost like a conveyor belt of variety shows mm. um, with different, slightly different angles and slightly different perspectives and maybe a different host. But it's what people wanted and it's what they were used to. So Sellers appeared in about seven or eight of those. And the, the, the programme must have been hugely popular because it ran for 20 years, even transferred to television at one stage. It was running on radio and television. Um, you know, it's hard for us to sort of imagine these days a, a programme doing that. But you, ha you have to remember, radio was king in those days. Yes. And people were kind of glued to their sets. So the big, the big thing that happened to Sellers, though, was um, on the 4th of April, 1949. Because every every radio show, every radio comedy show had a voiceman, you know, somebody who could just take on any character required in any comedy sketch and do whatever voice they were asked to do. And there were there were several of them. I mean, Maurice Denham is is mm -hmm. probably one of the, the, the most famous because he started out in doing things like Much Binding in the Marsh. He'd do all, lots of funny characters in that. John Pertwee would do the same in Merry Go Round. Yeah. And of course, later on, Kenneth Williams really had that role in Hancock's Half Hour. Yes. So when they were setting up a new comedy series, it was important to have one of these characters. And something called Everything's Under Control was put together as a vehicle for Ted Ray. Uh, and in looking for a voice man, I think by that time, you know, it was pretty obvious that there was only one person to choose. And that was sellers because people people like john pertwee as i mentioned before were already taken for other shows sellers wasn't sellers didn't have any commitment to anything on the radio he just appeared in loads of different shows so he was in the right place at the right time and very quickly they changed the name of this show to raise a laugh um and he ended up appearing in it in 194 programs Blimey. which is pretty, pretty incredible um now, it's incredibly dated now, but it was came about really because they were looking for a replacement for Itmar because um, Tommy Hanley had died suddenly of a, of a brain hemorrhage. The show had obviously got cancelled. It was a very popular show in a very popular slot. And this show was put in the Itmar slot. So there was no better place to be on BBC Radio than, than uh, on this show. And Sellers was there. Now, of course, you know, nobody knew whether Ted, whether Razor Laugh was going to be a big hit or not. It could have been a disastrous flop. But Sellers was in it from day one. And as I say, he he missed very few shows, if any at all. A barrel boy. What are you doing in a place like this? Aye, well, it's like this, mate. I was flogging me Cox's Pippins in Oxford Street when a copper comes up and moves me on to Camden Town. And another busy comes up and moves me on to Enfield. Before I know where I am, I'm through Cambridge, past rugby, and I'll finish up in an hole like this. <laughs> an educated man like you. Yes. Of course, I didn't always do this, you know. Oh? No. I used to own racehorses. Plenty of money in horses. Oh, yeah. 
Then I went in the nylons. Yeah, plenty of money in nylons. There is. Yeah. Then I went in for boxers. Oh, there's plenty of money in boxers. Yes. Then yeah. I went in for flowers. Oh, flowers. There's plenty of money in flowers. Yes, there was. So you've had to come down to pushing a barrow. Yes, and I'll tell you for why. The horses started walking, the nylon started running, the boxes started dropping and the flowers started drooping. That falls up fine, fine. <laughs> and he, he also did another series with uh, Ted Ray called Ted Ray Time. Um, can't remember exactly when that was. That was later. I wonder, so I, he... I, wonder, I wonder who at the BBC had the job of coming up with these programme titles because he, he, he was earning his money, wasn't he? <laughs> I know, but everything's under control. I mean, that was just dire, you know, and, um, but I think it's like a lot of these things. Oh, we'll come up with a title, you know, let's just have a working title. Because obviously, you know, it it, had taken a while to to develop, I should imagine. Um, And it sort of developed further as time went on. And and lots of, I haven't got a list of them, but lots of other people came through that show, like like Kenneth Connor. I think Kenneth Connor virtually took over, if you like, from Sellers. I mean, they yeah. were, I think they might have done some shows together. But again, Kenneth Connor was another voice man, somebody who you could say, oh, play, can you play some old farmhand or can you play Lord somebody or other? And and he would, you know, he, yeah, yeah. he, he could reliably do it. I like the fact that the baton passed from one generation to the new generation of comedians, if you like, in the sense that you had it. Itmar finishing, Razor Laugh beginning, and Sellers is obviously a key component of that. Yeah, and, and I think the interesting thing though is yes, it was the baton passing, and and it and it to some extent, you know, all of these programs, as I say, were kind of very similar in many respects. And that's why I think the Goon Show, when it came along, must have been like, you know, men from Mars landing, <laughs> because it was so different. And so original and unlike anything that people had heard, particularly later on, not so much in the early days, uh, but it was still revolutionary in the early days. But it just became so anarchic that I always maintain that it was the 50s version of alternative comedy, really. Mm. Um, And um, but that was sort of yet to happen. So so Sellers, you know, couldn't have landed on his feet any better than getting into that, because not only was the, the show well received and, and well liked uh, he was working alongside somebody who was really becoming the best comedian in the country and that's Ted Ray you know he was he was really up there so it was very very good for Seller's career and he loved it I think he absolutely loved it yeah um yeah. interestingly sort of around the same time was the the early attempts at getting something goon-like on the radio and as we know you know, they, they tried this thing called Sellers Castle because mm. they, they realised that Sellers was a character. You know, he was a, a, a person perhaps you could build a show around. Now, later on, Sellers sort of poo-pooed the whole idea of having um, any sort of programme built around him because of his lack of any sort of personality. And he, he was right, really. I mean, yeah. some of these people like Ted Ray, you know, they were kind of larger-than-life characters who would come on, hey, you know, it's Ted Ray, and everybody, round of applause and all this, and he'd be jovial and bubbly. Well, Sellers wasn't like that. Um, But the BBC did try a few times to tempt him, even later on, with his own radio show and his own TV show, and he might do a one-off, but he was certainly not going to get involved in any sort of series. Um, And I think that's probably why he liked The Goon Show, or one of the reasons, 
was because it was definitely a, a group thing. It was a team effort and he liked being part of a group or a team. It was it was also a way of sharing the risk, if you like. Yeah. So 1949 was when the, the, they, they first got together and did this sort of private recording of, of Sellers Castle. I think it was probably funded by Jimmy Grafton. Um, and it was recorded at Guy de Beer um, recording studio in New Bond Street in London. Um, sadly, the, the disc that they made, I think it was a disc, doesn't exist anymore. And they then did a performance for Roy Spear at Aeolian Hall. Uh, but it really wasn't getting them anywhere, as we know. Um, they did a second trial recording at um, this time. They called it Tatters Castle and the scripts exist for that. Uh, but they, by this time, they'd sort of thrown out a lot of the um, characters um, and some of the cast um, because in the, in the early one, Milligan was in it. But by the, by the time the later one came along, the second trial recording, he wasn't in it anymore because he wasn't, let's face it, in those days, he wasn't a performer. He wasn't known as a performer. Mm. Um, and so there were various other people brought in like Peter Butterworth and Janet Brown and, uh, and all that sort of thing. And all this was going along while he was still getting his feet under the table in, in Raise a Laugh. So, of course, he wanted this to be successful. I'm sure they all did. But at least he was still on the radio. He was still earning money. He was still doing well and still appearing in other lots of other shows, like, for instance, um, one called First House, another one called Geraldo's Open House. Um, <laughs> with a, with a, this, this time, the, 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 the thing for sellers in each of the programmes, I think he only appeared in four. There was a vehicle created for him by... Jimmy Grafton under the name of Jimmy Douglas called the Casebook of Dr. Sellers. So each week, you know, it'd be about the doctor and his patients or whatever, and he'd do impressions of the patients and so on. So again, it's just another vehicle for lots of impressions. And then amazingly, um, by October um, 1949, he was just 24, he made his first appearance at the London Palladium. Just mm -hmm. out of the blue, he'd been doing all this variety work and getting sort of, yeah, it's gradually getting better, but not getting very far with it. And suddenly he's right down the bottom of the bill, but he's at the London Palladium and Gracie Fields is the starring act. And he's there for two weeks. I mean, to me, this is phenomenal. It's just yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. Because he's been on the radio a lot. He's been on stage a bit. But to get an appearance for two weeks at the London Palladium, he must have he must have been over the moon. And I should think his mum was even more excited. Um, yeah. So he was never out of work, really, from 1948 for the rest of his life. No, no, no. He, he was. And it, well, in fact, the opposite. I mean, as time wore on, he was just working more and more and more. I mean, as the stage work increased, as I said to you before, the. Um, in the early days, he wasn't getting much stage work, but as he became more popular and more well-known and his name was bandied about more on the radio, people wanted to see, who is this guy? Let's, let's go. Oh, he's, he's on at the local flea pit. Let's go and, let's go and see him there, you know, because yeah, you yeah. could. I mean, towns had, especially bigger towns, might have three or four or more theatres. Um, and um, so he would, he would appear quite regularly all over the country. I mean, the list of stage performances is quite daunting and it's interesting that even once Michael Benteen had left the goon show Sellers went on tour with him on stage and the goons would variously pop up in various combinations 
um, sometimes billed as the goons, sometimes not, um, on variety theatres. Yes. Um, they would almost they would almost never perform together, but they'd be on the same bill. So you'd sometimes you'd get Spike Milligan, um, Max Geldray, and um, Harry Seacombe, or you might get Peter Sellers in in some of them. Um, you wouldn't really get Michael Benteen appearing with the others, but he certainly appeared. They were, as I say, they did a tour together, um, Sellers and Benteen, in the fifties, and and played oh, about a dozen or more dates together. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, he's never short of work. He was always doing something. He was always busy, and and the only way he could make room for film work was to have to ditch a lot of this stuff, as I said, which is what he did in fifty six. Yes. So sort of. Leaping on a little bit, um, we're then into, oh, we did this series called Petticoat Lane with Elsie and Doris Waters, Mm. um, which he did half a dozen or so episodes of at the end of 49, which he sort of managed to squeeze in immediately after having been on at the Palladium. Um, And what happened originally, I don't know why, but Benny, well, Benny Hill was in it originally, and the idea was, again, it was a lot of stallholders in a market in Petticoat Lane. And, you, they, you know, the, the, the um, customers would walk around the stalls and you'd hear different bits from different people. Benny Hill was in charge of books and sheet music. And then for the last seven programmes, Sellers took over. So why Benny Hill dropped out, I don't know. It was probably to do with stage work, I suspect, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes series got extended. And this happened to Sellers on a couple of occasions where series would get extended and some of the cast just weren't available because they were already booked onto something else. So they just get replaced. Wasn't that that conceit of the stallholder or the shopkeeper or the person who has some sort of business that people will frequent? Wasn't that continued in Paradise Street? Yes, it was the same kind of thing, I think. Yes. Mm. Sadly, um, you know, recordings of these programmes don't exist, so you can't really get to know what they were like. Even if you look at the script, it's quite difficult. Um, But yes, I think, again, it's just a a kind of excuse in a way for having lots of different people doing lots of different things. um, And to some extent, being able to do a little turn on your own. Mm. So it's um, these were not variety programmes. But in a way, they were because you had you, you had these little elements within them all linked together. Uh, and obviously that was quite popular and, and, and quite interesting and a way of making the programme a bit more varied, I suppose. So, you know, by this time, you know, the, the, the Goon Show is sort of starting to um, get starting to get off the ground. But again, you know, Sellers is still involved in Henry Hall's Guest Night and various other programmes. He At one stage, I think he was involved in a variety show on an aircraft carrier and all sorts of, um, you know, they, they, any, any excuse for doing something slightly different but keeping the format the same <laughs> seems to have been um, the way things worked. And by the end of 50, by the end of 1950, of course, so in addition to all this stuff, Sellers is then filming Penny Points to Paradise and Let's Go Crazy, Mm-hmm. Um, in Brighton. So by 51, we're into a trial recording of the Goon Show itself. Well, crazy people, we can't call it the Goon Show, yes. the BBC wouldn't, um, which was um, unbroadcast on the, but recorded on the 4th of um, February 51. And it's interesting actually, because obviously the first show was in May 51. And I found a, a, a quite a nice review here. Um, the weekly sporting review from the 26th of May 51 says 
a dream is gradually coming true. About five years ago in a little cafe, a stone's throw from the theatre which gave them all one by one a break, the windmill, we heard five or six would-be comedians discussing in lordy tones their ideas for the future. A goon review, nothing more, nothing less, in a West End theatre that would rock the town sideways. In that circle of then unknowns were Michael Benteen, Harry Seek and Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, Bill Kerr, script writer Jimmy Grafton, Norman Vaughan and a few others. Their unbounding enthusiasm was often more humorous than their ideas, but gradually the seeds are shooting up. Tomorrow, Sunday, they make the recording of a goon show. The quickest way to get an idea translated to the stage it is titled Crazy People. We hope that's the corniest thing about it. So ah. little did they know what was around the corner. Fascinating. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And if that wasn't enough, then from the end of May until um, the end of June, Sellers was back at the London Palladium, this time supporting Danny Kaye. Oh, God. So, so now he's doing the London Palladium, Crazy People and Raise a Laugh all at the same time. Danny Kaye was one of the biggest stars in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he appeared at the Palladium on several occasions. Mm. Um, but this time with, with Sellers, I can't remember where Sellers was, was in the bill. He clearly wasn't near the top. But he, he was but still, obviously not at the bottom either. And yeah. just being on the same bill is, is yeah. quite something. And then around about the same time, he got involved in another um, trial recording, as they used to call them, or we might call them a pilot, um, for something called Bumblethorpe, mm. yeah. uh, which was written by Milligan and Larry Stevens. Um, and Sellers was in the, um, in the original uh, trial recording, as I say. But he didn't appear in the series except that um, one of the regulars in the programme was Valentine Dial, because the, the programme was really a vehicle for a comedian called Robert Morton. Mm. Um, and he appeared with Avril Angers, Kenneth Connor, Graham Stark and Denise Breyer. But on one particular occasion for the broadcast that was to go out in November 51, um, Dial just disappeared. Nobody knew where he'd gone. He <laughs> really? Just, he just vanished. He just completely vanished. Nobody could find him. I think the programme was produced by Dennis Main Wilson. And obviously, knowing Sellers, he just, and knowing that Sellers had also been involved in the pilot, he grabbed Sellers and got Sellers to replace Valentine Dial. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, it was, a, it was a, an odd series, that, by the sound of it. I mean, none of it survives, but. The idea was there was supposed to be a writer of a diary um, and the diary had fallen into hands of blackmailers, uh, one of whom was played by Valentine Dial and the other by Kenneth Connor. Um, <laughs> and each edition featured a different Bumblethorpe. So the, 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 the Bumblethorpe character was a different character every week. And it was just an, another excuse. But this time it was a sort of sketch show. Uh, and every week it was built around somebody else. So... Um, and Spike was in it as well, as well as writing. He was in yes, a show, yes. wasn't he? Yeah. And then um, most, most famously, um, the only evidence we have of the early Goon show um, was filmed on uh, the 22nd of July, 51. Yeah. Um, when they filmed an edition of Crazy People for the film called London Entertains. Mm -hmm. Hello, Eagle Foot's flat muscle here. I'll never sleep. Listen, Pinhead, this is Cat Legs McGillan here. Either I get that five grand in one hour, or it's kittens for you. Oh. 
Crackles. Oh, you? If I don't get $4,000 within the hour, I'm going to get killed. Oh, uh, uh, what's the time now? <laughs> Two o'clock. Oh, don't worry, boss. I'll ring Jake. Oh, oh hello, Jake. Oh, can you fix a funeral for three o'clock? And the other the other thing that happened to Sellers um, around that time, well, in September, actually, was that he got married to Anne Howe or Anne Hayes, as she preferred to be known. Yeah. And I recently discovered that she had actually made a film. Um, nobody seems to have known about this film, although it's been hiding in broad daylight. Um, but she'd actually she'd appeared on TV on a couple of things in a couple of things. But in 1950, she made a film. Uh, a Paul in the Paul Temple series. I think it was called The Triumph of Paul Temple or Paul Temple's Triumph or something like that. Right. Um, recently shown on Talking Pictures TV and available on their um, Ooh, Encore yes. website. Yes. Uh, and she appears in about the first 20 minutes of it. Okay. Check that out. And, and nobody knew about it. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was just something that was never talked about. And so I just thought uh, that's a sidebar to Stella's radio career. But, um, you know, she was busy doing stage work and stuff like that. And I've got evidence that he would, um, uh, if he was nearby, uh, certainly on one occasion, he went to see her on stage um, in, in the Midlands somewhere, I think it was, uh, you know, in a, in a play while he was doing variety somewhere else. Right. So by the end of um, 1951, he also made a couple of appearances in Calling All Forces, which was um, for service personnel and was written by Bob Monkhouse and his writing partner, Dennis Goodwin. And he appears in a one-man goon show in, in one of those episodes where he plays Blood Knock, he plays Ernie Splutmuscle, Crystal Jollybottom, Eccles, and a host of other characters. So as, as we've, you know, in this quick roundup, hopefully you've got a much better idea of, of what was going on in Seller's radio life uh, in addition and before the Goon Show. Oh, gotcha. It's been fascinating. I mean, some of it, well, most of it, I was I was aware of some of the radio shows that you've mentioned, of course, but I'd never really had such an in-depth understanding of quite how much he, he took on in those days. Yeah, and of course, it, it led on to appearances in things like Educating Archie, Desert Island Discs, Paradise Street, uh, Starstruck, Ted Ray Time, Finkel's Cafe, Happy Holiday, loads of stuff. Thanks to Mark. Uh, and Mark will hopefully be back in the future to talk about sellers on the wireless in the 50s. Um, just not the Goon Show bits, obviously. So thank you for listening. Uh, please uh, rate and review, etc. The usual flannel. Also, please check out the Goon Show Preservation Society. They're on Twitter at the GSPS. And uh, please consider becoming a member. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very worthwhile undertaking. So I will be back next week with, uh, it's scheduled to be uh, an episode talking about uh, specifically a show called Fred. Until then, as always, take care of yourselves. See you soon. Bye.